Welcome everyone, this is Nancy Novak. Thank you for joining us. Today we're gonna to be discussing how to bridge the digital divide for, for digital equity and inclusion. With me, I have a very esteemed guest, Dr. Julie Albright. Dr. Albright is a digital sociologist who spent her career looking at the digital transformation of society. She has given talks for both C-level executives and professional audience for Google, SAP, IBM Global, Accenture, CS Week, the American Society of Petroleum Engineers, AESP, the Department of Defense, Data Center Dynamics, and many, many others. She's the former managing director of the University of Southern California Electric Institute under the executive directorship of Don Paul, the former CTO of Chevron. While there, she was a co-principal investigator on a 121 million smart grid demonstration project funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. Along with UCLA, Caltech, JPL, and the LA Department of Water and Power, she just won a $15 million grant from the NSA for superconducting computer, along with a team at USC Vertebe School of Engineering. She is the elect a lecturer at USC, the Vertebe School, and the Applied Psychology Departments, where she teaches courses on interactive media and sustainable infrastructure. She's also on the board of directors of Infrastructure Masons, a professional organization for, infra for IT and the data center professionals. Dr. Albright has appeared as an expert commentator on many national television programs, including, and this is a long list, the Bloomberg News, the Today Show, CNN, NBC Nightly News, Nat Geo, CBS, C-SPAN, Dr. Phil, and NPR. She has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and many others. And she recently gave a TED Talk in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Albright has a solid record of scholarly research and publication. Her new book explores the impacts of digital technologies on traditional social structures and behaviors. Called Left to Their Own Devices, How the Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream, was published in April of 2019 by Pro Prothemesis Books, distributed by Penguin Random House, and was chosen a Bloomberg Top 30 Book of the Year. And by the way, a documentary film is forthcoming based on this book. That is so exciting. And I'm so, so happy to have you here, Julie. And I also want to add that Julie's a good friend of mine. We, uh, we see each other at a lot of conferences. And so we're very passionate about this topic. And I'm excited to share with our audience the expertise of Dr. Albright. So let's start out by just, you know, let's give a definition and describe what the digital divide is for those listening to Right. Hey, thank you for the nice introduction. It's so great to be here with you. And I know you have such a passion for this topic. So thank you for that. So the digital divide, you know, when we start thinking about it, you know, you kind of think high level and think, well, maybe someone doesn't have access to a device or something like that. But as we delved more into it, I kind of think about it as three pillars. You know, one, you might ha not have a digital device, be it a smartphone or a laptop, something like that. Second, you might not have digital connectivity, meaning internet at home sort of thing. And third, you might not have digital skills. So it can be any of those three or a combination thereof. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, the digital literacy part is one that I think is uh, very misunderstood. 
So Julie, I mean, we do talk a lot about the various um, you know, layers of the digital divide as it relates to those three pillars and also as it relates to things like geography, gender, disability, um, ethnicity, um, economic you know, wherewithal. And, and I would love to kind of dive in a little bit on the gender topic. What, what do you think um, really impacts our gender? And, and let's, let's layer on to that the COVID aspect, right? And what happened during COVID, um, both for the digital divide and for the, for the women who are, um, you know, in the women who are in our society trying to, you know, you know, get equality when it comes to opportunities. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad you brought that up because there's two ways to think about that. And as you're speaking, the one way that comes to mind also, and we could think of this as a fourth pillar or something that encompasses all of the above is this idea of getting more women into developing technology. Now, there's a lot of blind spots that happen uh, because we don't have a lot of women that are in the field. Uh, so that's one of the aspects. Uh, you talk about engineering. I worked with the former CTO of Northrop Grumman, who's a wonderful fellow, and he said that he had more women on his team than any of the other teams, and they far outperformed all the other teams he said to me, because engineering works by analogy, and the more experiences you have and the different experiences you have, you're able to bring different analogies and thus be more innovative. And so I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So bringing more women in to develop technology isn't simply a nice thing to do. It's an innovation imperative. It actually brings more innovative results. Uh, and even thinking about other points of view, for example, I come out of sociology, but I also have a master's and PhD in counseling. So I think a lot about human behavior and the behavioral and social aspects of technology. My work kind of fits in between those fields. And when things like Google Glass came out, I looked at that in, in five seconds. I said, well, that's not going to work. And, and all the tech bro guys kept saying, well, yeah, keep saying that. I said, well, I will keep saying that because, I, you know, it interrupts our long evolved system of communication, nonverbal communication between us. It's like, are you talking to me or are you reading your email? You know, are, are we, are you listening to me or are you checking a text message? You know, and so, uh, and I worked, by the way, for over two years in a mental hospital as part of gathering my hours for my counseling license. And if someone's schizophrenic, they'll go like this. And he'll say, are you hearing voices right now? And they go, yeah. And so it mimics that same, you know, I'm looking off at my thing while we're talking. It mimics, uh, you know, a schizophrenic reaction. So, it, you know, you, you're sort of set off by that. And it could be very subtle. But these, again, these are long evolved communication patterns. So the idea of having other points of view, women's voices, underrepresented minorities that have different kinds of experiences can lead to maybe avoiding failures like that, more innovative solutions and things like that. And that's a whole separate, we could talk separately about that. When we think about the more traditional pillars of the digital divide, when we're talking about lack of devices, lack of connectivity, lack of skills, what the research shows is that overall and globally, women are more likely to fall on the wrong side of the digital divide. And we might think about the intersection then of social economic status, 
and gender, the idea that maybe poorer women are the ones most likely to not be connected, to not have a device. And when you think about that, and then we go into age, you know, so these are all sociological categories by which we may say, where do you fall on these things? And when we put age in there, and that's the idea of intersectionality, that there's different kinds of things, gender, age, social class, all intersecting to put you somewhere on a map of connectivity, let's call it. And what we started seeing was during COVID, as you know, and our listeners know, the pressure to be online escalated incredibly. People's digital transformation journey went from maybe years to month to even weeks. So suddenly we're working online. Suddenly we're going to school online. Doctors are visiting patients online. Everything, you know, governmental buildings, you know, were closed, go online. And if you're a senior citizen, an older woman, you know, we had some of our students working with these seniors and one of the women had tears coming down her cheek while she was telling the student in Spanish and immigrants are less likely to be connected, same thing. So here's an immigrant older woman. She had all those intersections going and she says, I couldn't get my medicine and a little tear ran down and I was, oh my God, my heart just broke seeing this. She was very tiny and older and just felt so vulnerable to me and it just broke my heart. So when, when it first started up, you had to go online to get a COVID shot appointment. You had to go online to, to, apply, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, to apply for a COVID check from the government. Well, imagine you're this woman. Mm-hmm. It practically took, I have a, a dual doctorate and two masters. I could barely figure out how to get an appointment. I mean, I'm clicking <laughs> through and going on websites and then it makes me here. And I ended up going right back where I started. If you were a senior, Without digital skills, there's no way. So here we have the yeah. seniors that are the most likely population to be, you know, very severely impacted or killed by COVID. And they can't get their shot because they can't get online. They don't know how to make an appointment. I mean, that was incredibly difficult. Well, and they, can't, they couldn't see their families. They were isolated. There was all of those things going on. And I, I really want to uh, pull back a string a little bit on that intersectionality. I love how you how you phrase that. I also want to um, kind of comment back on what you said about the, um, you know, kind of the visual way that we communicate because oh, yeah. um, I was told years ago that 70% of what we say isn't verbal, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, it's the ways that we use our bodies and our, right. our, our, our eyes and our facial expressions. So um, I do think it's fascinating when we think of the cognitive differences between, you know, the genders and different ethnic backgrounds when it comes to, like you said, creating software, creating devices, mm-hmm. and being in, in, the, in the infrastructure and the IT environment. So um, I, I do believe that, that there's some inequity there that has to be solved for sure. And then um, also when you think about, you know, like those three pillars again, and the, uh, the, the, the one on connection and being able to afford devices, looking at the eco, the economics, you know, around the world, it's just, it's just a vast amount of difference between, you know, the penetration we have like in the UK and in the US versus countries like Africa or India. Um, and, and this is something that, um, that will impact all of us um, on, the, you know, on earth. 
not just those in the countries that don't have access. Um, how can you, you know, explain that to people, Julie? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a tough uh, tough situation. You know, it's interesting because we think about certain countries uh, like parts of Asia leapfrogged over some of our telephony, for example, and right into the cell phone era and actually have better connectivity than we have here in parts of the U.S. Uh, and I remember Kobe Bryant saying, hey, why can I get a better connection on the Great Wall of China than I can get here on the freeway in L.A.? You know, so, you know, so when you talk about countries like Africa, they're poised to really come on the scene and perhaps uh, jump and leapfrog into some of our new digital era. It's a very young continent. Uh, the majority of people are like under 25-esque, you know, and it depends on the different country, but they're very young and just ripe for involving in the digital uh, world. So I think over the next, um, you know, 10 years or so, you're really going to see Africa strongly coming on the scene. And as you know, there's a lot of development going on there amongst setting up the infrastructure oh, yeah. to make this possible. And even in the last couple of years during COVID, it's just boomed. So keep your eye on Africa because they're going to be coming into this, the digital world online and, you know, doing commerce online and, and being consumers and things like that. So I think it's going to be an interesting place to watch. No, I, to I totally agree. That's a great, a great point. Um, and I do think that the emerging markets are going to be able to leapfrog ahead in many ways uh, with us, with the ability to have satellites and edge products, you know, all over the planet. And I, I just want to point out, like, you know, the advantage of having, I mean, it's really good for everyone. It's that rising tide lifts all boats. And we really do want opportunities to be uh, a global. We don't want to keep our, ourselves isolated because we are we are a small world now. You know, there's there's a lot of trade that goes on amongst the nations. And, and we really need to make sure that everybody has that equal opportunity. So the Internet becomes a great equalizer, not the great divider. That's what I always like to yeah, say. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, Julie, so I, you know, I mean, we... I, you and I talk all the time about how we like to admire the problem, you know, through the eyes of academia, right? Because we can we can kind of see it. We don't have the perfect crystal ball, but we can kind of see some of the consequences um, for not being able to solve for this gap within our own country and around the world. I would like to talk a little bit about some of the actionable things that you've been able to see and partake in that people can take away as, as um, ways where they can help and contribute as well. Yeah. Well, uh, we started thinking, and you taking leadership on this issue has been just wonderful with Infrastructure Masons. Uh, for those that don't know, Infrastructure Masons is a large, now global organization of IT and other professionals that are really building the digital age. And uh, Dean Nelson, our fearless leader, likes to call it the builders of the digital age. And so one of the things that we start thinking about is this kind of inequality of the digital divide. And you've been helping, you know, really spearheading that effort, which is wonderful. And one of the things we've been able to do is kind of take a what we call a boots on the ground approach. You know, you and I are pragmatic uh, women, I think, and we like to get things done. We like to do things. We like to take action. And, you know, you know, I, I love academia and it's a wonderful place to work, but oftentimes it's about looking at a problem, not about actionable solving a problem. So uh, I realized that, uh, you know, many universities and also high schools 
uh, have civic learning or service learning that is now mandatory for the students. And so started thinking, hey, if we could compile a little student army to go out there and do digital skills training, to partner with infrastructure masons and other organizations to provide laptops or to provide tablet devices to lower income students, for example, uh, we can partner with a company called WaveMax to provide internet connectivity in inner cities and underserved neighborhoods, starting with bodegas and other little shops in the neighborhoods uh, in a sort of win-win model where there's advertising supporting it. So the idea being that, you know, we've partnered and, we, and we've delivered on this by creating courses around the digital divide, or if not a whole course, other professors or teachers, again, in high school, could put it as a, an assignment within another course. And we tried that model too, which worked out beautifully. So the students are out there identifying uh, students in need at different schools, some of them schools that they went to. So starting out with two universities, one is Cal State Los Angeles, that has a very high proportion of lower income, minority, a lot of Latinas, and also a high percentage of first generation to go to college students. They came up through these neighborhoods. They saw these inequalities. They lived these inequalities. So they can go back to their schools and say, hey, we can provide, tell us who the students are that don't have a laptop, that don't have a tablet. We can provide those. We'll train them on how to use them and we'll get them up to speed with the other kids. And so that's what we've done. And we've had them going to senior homes. So we've had them going to senior centers, teaching. And the seniors feel a little intimidated, but the, these cute students come in and they say, oh, no, no, don't. And, we're, and, the, and the seniors have said, oh, thank you for your patience. My, my son or my daughter, they're just not patient with me. I appreciate you showing me how to do this. And next thing you know, during COVID, which the listeners may not know, these senior centers locked their doors to protect the seniors. So they had no connectivity with their families. So getting them a device, showing them how to make a FaceTime call, for example, next thing you know, there's their son or their daughter on a screen and they're like, wow, talking to them with this smile on their face. I mean, it's so heartwarming. I can't even tell you. We've got videos of the kids, you know, the students delivering laptops that were funded by iMasons and funded by our partners. And the kids are literally jumping up and down and dancing, doing a happy dance because they're getting their laptop. And it's so darn cute and so heartwarming. And, you know, everything from little kids, some are even homeless, little tiny elementary kids, all the way through high school. We had a group of young Latina, young leaders, that, and the students taught them how to search for colleges, how to apply for colleges, all the way to senior citizens. So every group you could think of, and we had hundreds of students out there in teams. A little army. A little army, about three yeah, to five that's training, right. and yeah. just absolutely fantastic. So I think it's a well, good it model because it, it, you can scale it. It is. It's not such it's not only a great model for, you know, for the community, but I mean, think of the leadership skills those kids are getting through this learning environment. I mean, this is it's hands on. Um, I mean, and giving back. I mean, that's that's just got to feel so good. Um, I was I did want to mention, too, I know that there's um, there's those same types of civic learning classes, you know, in other universities. I'm hoping that this podcast will reach some that don't have these 
programs and that they can pick up on these or reach out to you or, or I or myself to, um, right. to ask what they can do. Um, I know that my daughter at George Mason University, they do a civic uh, learning class where they come up with ideas similar to what you're talking about to go help the community. But what I really love about what you're doing, Julie, is that you're, you're actually taking it to the next step and you're actually doing the boots on the ground work, not just coming up with the idea. I think that is so important. And I also want to point out that the, in the, in the elderly and the, in the um, old folks homes and the, and the, the senior living places, um, that is one of the areas of the digital divide that had the largest gap in the beginning of COVID. It was over 40% from age 65 and over, and it got almost cut in half that gap did during COVID. That's how accelerated it was. And that's how these consorted efforts can really push the, um, you know, the needle into a meaningful way of solving for that. And if you, if you look at that and you say, gosh, if we can improve 20 some percent in a couple of years in one intersection of this, then imagine what we could do if we really all, you know, practice this and put these actions to work. That's right. And, uh, you know, what we're putting together for teachers and other professors is a syllabus to create a course like this, or you can see in a syllabus an assignment and all the documentation. So the students have to create a proposal. So they have to, like you said, the leadership skills, they have yeah. to go out and interface with community leaders, uh, everything from a senior home to a boys and girls club to a local like principals or you know teachers in schools and things. And so they propose what they're gonna do. They have the number of students, they have the laptops, they create a little budget. And then they have to submit that. And then they have to implement that plan. You know, what's your plan? How are you going to teach? When do you do it? What is your curriculum for, you know, training on this thing? You know, come up with some slides. And they go all the way. And then they document it with films and videos. And then they present it. So all of those skills are components of leadership. And they're also learning at the same time about, you know, infrastructure masons and the opportunities and, and things like that. But it's it's such a great thing to be able to do. And I love to support other teachers and professors as well in, in implementing these kinds of programs because they're already doing service learning. It's just you, you apply it to a problem like a food desert or something. You apply it to a problem, but this is a problem they don't think about. It's not on their radar. Right. Right. And speaking of that too, I, I you mentioned earlier the WaveMax technology. I would love for you to Tell us a little bit more about that, because I think this is one of the technologies, like probably many others, that we would like to learn about, bring forward, and then share so that other people can take action as well. Yes, 100%. So WaveMax is run by a wonderful uh, Latino gentleman by the name of Eduardo Velasco. It's a startup, and they're partnering with a fintech firm. Uh, unbeknownst to maybe many, there's a lot of what's called remittances. So when immigrants come to the U.S., they send money home, a remittance, back to their family. So this app allows them to make these remittances. And so basically what this does, WaveMax, is partners with small community like a bodega in New York, the little shops that are sort of family owned or a little coffee shop or a little, uh, um, all kinds of different businesses, little restaurant or things like that. And so the students in this case would go out and discover locations 
talk to these owners of businesses, they'd give them a little pitch and see if they might be interested in providing free Wi-Fi. So they can either provide their own Wi-Fi and then there's this app and uh, to this community or WaveMax will install the Wi-Fi for the community. And it's paid for by an advertising model. And so the little store could advertise. And when you think about things like food deserts, which intersects with low-income neighborhoods, what that means is they don't have a lot of fresh foods, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables available. And you have an app like this, you can do push advertising to that community and say, hey, we have a special on salads or on, you know, come on in, you know, and, and you know, so, so they can benefit from that as well. The store gets a little piece of the advertising revenue. The local people get free Wi-Fi. And, you know, and it's a way to bring customers in. It's a win -win. Yeah, because you can have a sticker say, hey, free Wi-Fi. And, and, you know, people will come in to pay their bills online and do these things we've been talking about. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. And it's a wonderful pro-social bridging the digital divide by answering that question about connectivity and providing Wi-Fi. And I think it's just wonderful. So we're trying to continue to partner with Eduardo Velasco and his team to expand. This started in New York and New Jersey and the student army, <laughs> they're, they're expanding it in the Los Angeles area. So he just flew out to meet personally with the different little businesses that were located by the students. Uh, to keep the conversation going and maybe get that. I just love that story. I love, I love hearing about those technologies so much, Julie. That's so great. Um, I encourage our listeners to look into WaveMax. And I also would encourage you to reach out to us if you've heard of other technologies that are like that, um, because this is something that will make a big difference in, in individual communities. And then it'll, it'll grow. It's like that ripple in the pond. So I, I and I, it is a business case. It's a win-win for everybody. So it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, we are getting close to time and I really, really, really want to dig into some of what um, you're able to do through Infrastructure Masons and how other people can contribute and help this cause, um, the, the digital divide. Now, one of the things I want, I, I, I have to start out with Julia is, is I love your stories about, you know, the laptops and what it takes to give those laptops out and, um, and how, what the impact it has in the overall families and communities of these kids that are getting laptops? You know, this is a journey that we've been on. And for the listeners, you learn on a journey. You know, they again, we think of the digital divide. Maybe you don't have a device. But if you have a device and you don't have the skills, you're still not connected. So, you, you know, the view of it starts to expand. One of the things that you think about when you hand a laptop to a kid be it a younger kid or, or a, a college student, for example, you don't think, but it's impacting the whole family. We gave a laptop, for example, to a, a young woman at Cal State Los Angeles. Turns out she's a young mother, a single mother, and she was having to find childcare for her child and get a bus to the school, go to the computer lab, but that's only open certain hours, and she's wandering around at night trying to traverse all this. When we gave her this laptop, she says, oh my God, I'm going to be able to work at home at my convenience. I don't have to get childcare now. You're impacting a whole family and you don't even realize that. Another case that really stood out to me was a young fella who was a kid at a private school and they have scholarships for some of the 
uh, lower income kids and he was one of those kids. And during COVID, they said every kid must have a laptop. So his must have one, mandatory. His parents go out and buy the laptop and it's so tough for them, Nancy, they can't quite afford it. They took the laptop back. And here's this kid. I mean, can you imagine, first of all, how the kid feels, but think how the parents felt, how downtrodden and how they failed this kid. And he has to, now the kid is like, you know, it's no fault of the kid, but he they couldn't afford this. So the students identified this kid, gave him the laptop, and as they're handing it to him, he told that story about how I had one, they had to take it back. Can you imagine the lowered stress on these parents that are already kind of living on the edge financially and during COVID and who knows if their work is stable because we simply gave a laptop to their child? I mean, you just, you don't think about the systemic impact and how that can maybe set that kid on the right path toward education and toward a bright future. So I guess the point we want to make is, and another discovery, when I think of a laptop, I think of my, you know, whatever, $1,200, $1,500, you know, MacBook Air, whatever it is. No, we can get little Chromebooks for like $180 to $250 range. We've gotten little That's tablets amazing. for like $79. We can make a difference yeah. for around $200. It doesn't take millions yeah. of dollars and you can do, you know, 10 kids and it's, it's not that much money for a yeah. serious impact. And so that was exciting to discover as well. Very, very exciting. Very exciting. So Julie, I would love for, um, you know, for us to be able to tell our audience how they can contribute. Um, and in particular, I think the infrastructure masons, Website is a way that we can go and um, and help you. You know, you can go and click on the tab that's about digital divide, and it'll have there a link for you to be able to donate. Um, small amounts of money matter. Any everything counts, right? Everything counts. Like I said, seventy five, seventy nine dollars. We've got a tablet in the hands of kids. We've got tablets in the hands of seniors. We've got laptops in the hands of elementary, high school, college students that really need it. It's really gonna make a significant difference in their lives and, and it gives them hope. And just think about them also seeing college students. Here's a little first generation immigrant kid who, you know, you give him a laptop. He's seeing a young college student like himself. It's a model for yeah. what he can become. So it's just such a win all the way around. It's so exciting and Nancy, just appreciate your you know, working with this and, and developing this program, because I think it's very exciting. Well, so, so again, to the audience, it's um, infrastructuremasons.com. Um, it's very easy to navigate. Yeah. You can find um, ways in which you can Don't contribute me. to the scholarship fund and the digital divide right there. And I would just like, in closing, Julie, um, you know, call to action. What, what do we want to, what message are we leaving our audience? With? Yeah, so join up uh, if you're, you or your company want to donate, you know, imasons.com on our links. Uh, you can do that and help support this effort. If you want to come and, and hands-on help us, or you know of a school or some entity, like we have like a, like a boys and girls club, it's called East LA Rising. If you're familiar with an organization that maybe you're working with that could benefit from this program, let us know. We're happy to continue to build on this uh, effort. And I just think it's so wonderful and it makes you feel good. And we're, we're really making a difference out there in the digital divide. We are. I thank you so much, Julie. And, and to the audience, please 
um, be that ripple in the pond, you know, spread the word, do your research, um, join, join the good fight to close the gap on the digital divide. Like again, a rising tide lifts all boats and we will all benefit from this. So again, thanks so much to our esteemed guest, Julie Albright, and we will see you on the next podcast. Thanks for having me.